Dons fans, and welcome to the first 2023 postseason episode of Don the Stat. The 2023 AFL season has come and gone for our beloved football club. We finished the season with 11 wins and 12 losses and 11th on the ladder. I'm Jonathan Walsh, and I'm joined in the Don the Stat studio by my co-host, Dean Hume. Hume, mate, how are you? Hey, mate, I, th- I think I'm doing a bit better than you. You took three attempts to try and get through that that intro there. So I'm, I'm guessing you had a pretty big mad Monday after the Essendon season finished. Uh, well, yeah, like most Essendon fans, I'm feeling uh, uh, mad as it is. So I had a mad Saturday, mad Sunday, mad Monday to go with them. A pretty mad <laughs> Tuesday and Wednesday as well, mate. But uh, no, 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 um, not alcohol induced. Just uh, already found myself out of the swing of things um, post-season. But yeah, I'm I'm doing pretty well myself, mate. Yeah, it's a bit weird coming into a Thursday night for us now without another Dons match to talk about. You know, it's been five months of non-stop football and, and that means five months of pretty much non-stop podcasting. And now we have to sit on the sidelines to hopefully watch someone other than Collingwood or Carlton win the premiership. Yeah, well, at least we've got six choices to to choose from without those. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to align myself to anyone in particular, but anyone but those two, right? Yeah, I think they're the worst two possibilities there. Uh, look, before we get started tonight, we'd just like to confirm that we'll be doing our postseason Patreon Q&A episode next Wednesday, much like we did with our mid-season one. This will be recorded on Zoom, and we invite our patrons to join us and ask questions about the Bombers season and where to from here. The link will be available to all patrons, so if you want to take part, you can actually so- sign up for a seven-day free trial on our Patreon, so you can get access to that. Uh, the link to our Patreon is in the description of this episode. And I would also like to say thanks to everyone who came along for drinks prior to the Collingwood game. It was certainly my highlight of the night. It all sort of went downhill after we left Founders, but there you go. Uh, so shout out to James, Jamie, Taz, Maria, Patrick, Luke, Andrew, Craig, Robert, and Robert's mum for coming along. Yeah, it was good fun. Definitely the highlight of the night. And uh, yeah, I think a few minutes into the first quarter, I was wishing I had just stayed in the bar, I think. Yeah, I think most of us were messaging each other about that if we could head back but anyway well look that sort of brings us to what we want to talk about first and let's get the match review out of the way we're not going to spend a whole lot of time analyzing this but I know the scoreboard doesn't really suggest it I mean it it does in terms of actual score but I do think it was somewhat of an improvement on the previous week we're playing a much better side in the Pies than the Giants um, where the Giants have come into some good form so I think that also needs to be taken into consideration as well but still really showed why the Bombers are so far off being able to challenge the best sides consistently enough to be a flag chance. And that's where we're really trying to head towards. So I guess comparing the Pies game to the Giants game, we actually got our hands on the ball against the Pies as, as opposed to the Giants match. So disposals were even. We were down six in the clearances, but that compared to down 13 against the Giants. Uh, down 14 in contested possession as opposed to being down 41 against the Giants. Uh, we took 15 more marks than Collingwood did as opposed to being down by 48. Uh, the marks inside 50 were even, so the Giants having 12 more. Um, we actually were pretty good at stopping Collingwood from scoring. Their forward efficiency was with 43%, whereas we let the Giants score on 57% of their entries. Collingwood just had a mountain more entries, and, and that led to their higher score. So there's points to suggest that you know they certainly weren't as, an, as bad as the previous game, but... Most of the damage was done in that first quarter. Eight goals, one to two behind just shows how much Collingwood cut us apart. And you could just sort of tell really early what was going to happen. Part of that is just how effective they are, both turning over the ball and then transferring it quickly to score. But also part of that's just down to how dysfunctional our forward line has become. It's 
it's really difficult to see players moving and, and creating options. There, there were times early on when Wiedemann was, was leading and taking marks on the wing that we got a fair idea about what good movement could look like. But then once he took that mark, there was, there was little for him to kick to. And, you know, there was obviously more of a response this week after a first quarter belting than we saw against the Giants. And, you know, after the first quarter, Essendon had more scoring shots than the pie. So definitely more of a response that that time. But how much of that is due to Essendon improving and how much is that the pie is taking the foot off the gas is, is up for debate. Yeah, good summary, Matt. I, I mean, I thought this was a 10-goal loss on paper with the players that we had out with, you know, Draper, Cordwell, Shield, Ridley, Wright, Stringer are, are all locks in our, our best team if they're if they're fit. And then, you know, Jones, Guelphie and Kelly are, are sort of on the cusp or, or you know, they're either in the team or, the, or they're the first guys getting called up when we've got a couple of injuries and they were out too. So, you know, it's a lot out and, and amongst that were first, third, fifth, seventh and ninth in last year's best and fairest. And, you know, Draper and, and Ridley in particular and, and, you know, to a lesser extent, Wright and, and Stringer are really key structural pieces to to our side. And, and we just don't have a list that is capable of covering for that level of um, of quality player being out uh, just to this stage, given just how young we are. Uh, you know, that aside, the first quarter was awful. And um, yeah, you, to get outscored eight goals to zero is just not something, regardless of who you've got on the on the field, you would ever hope to see. And, you know, you touched on it. I, I agree that it can be said that Collingwood put the cue in the rack at quarter time. And and I think they probably did, but at least we didn't. And, and I think when you're trying to take something out of a game that you're getting well beaten in to to at least not completely um roll over and 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 you know lay down i think was at least something 14 scoring shots to 12 in our favor after quarter time we probably missed a chance to at least put some respectability back on the scoreboard and and at least exit the season uh, with a you know one of those old old school honorable losses and and having closed the game out with with a little bit of momentum which is a which is a real shame but but then again, based on how the first quarter went, we we probably didn't deserve any better than that anyway. Um, so yeah, look, a bit of a long bow, but at least we did somewhat grind the game out. It, it was another game against Collingwood where they kicked really well in front of goal. You know, you go back to Anzac Day a couple of years ago where they, I think they was it seventeen four or something ridiculous. They kicked one of the um, uh, records for for um, goal kicking conversion rate. Um, the expected goal, sorry, expected score. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. Some people don't get it. Some people don't like it. And yeah, bad kicking is bad football and, and all of that. But the expected score was 53 to 81. So a 28 point margin rather than 70. And, you know, maybe if it was closer to that, we might have been just feeling a little bit different. I think the supporters probably um, deserve the game to go closer to the expected score rather than than what we actually saw. But, um, but so be it. I don't think we saw the level of attention to opposition planning that we saw early in the season. You know, Setterfield came back into the midfield mix, but didn't really seem to have a defined role or, or be defensive on anyone. We saw it, you know, um, Degoe just run through the midfield multiple times and, and he had a matchup that he was always going to get the better of. Uh, there were a few highlights. Martin and Durham, I thought, closed out the season with really good games. I thought, I think Durham's last month was really good. I think he went missing for a little while there, as young players tend to do. Uh, Sardis got the experience to play his first game on the MCG in front of a big crowd and against a really good opponent. You know, let's not forget Collingwood finished the season on top of the ladder. So, you know, we were playing the best team thus far in 2023. I thought Cox looked really good once he moved down back and, and showed some good signs back there. And I thought we saw some signs of the value Wiedemann can offer when he's playing well. Uh, we know he's he's got problems with maintaining a level of consistency. But um, but I think uh, you know we also 
got another reminder of what he is capable of. So yeah, there's some individual signs there. Team performance, you know, wasn't one that we can be particularly happy about, but at least there were a couple of things that that we got out of the game. There was one thing that that really grabbed your attention, mate, and that was Brad Scott's um, post match press conference. Yeah, he caused a little bit of a stir. I know there's been some questioning of his messaging in the media, but I think he's been consistent all year, whether we've he's been speaking after a win or a loss. You know, he's spoken often about that there's a lot of work to do and, and the team's coming from a long way back. And yes, some people have argued that that gives the players an out and that may be ex- an explanation for why there's the drop-off. But I think he's just being realistic about where the list is and, you know, that messaging is not only going out to fans, but also to players just about how much work there is to go and look I I'm pretty happy with that I think I've said multiple times on this show that we need someone to take a long-term approach and, and not look for quick fixes um and unless we we get things right over a long-term basis we're not going to be a long-term successful side and I think that's what we all want to be um but probably the biggest new message to come out of that press conference was that in the coach's thoughts it's not necessarily the fitness of the players that's leading to fade outs. It's the lack of living an AFL lifestyle, you know? So I guess that's probably been the message that's been talked about the most coming out of that press conference. What do you take away from that? Yeah, I I guess it would be pure speculation to take too much out of it. Wouldn't it? That's not something that you and I really uh, like to buy into all that much, but my assumption there is that there's a bit of a message to the playing group uh, about the level of work they're going to need to do when they're away from the club, uh, particularly now going into to an off season and, and and sending a message that they they're going to need to come back really fit and, and ready to go to to work really really hard. I think it, it's a bit of a message on uh, you know perhaps an indication that players aren't doing as much as they can to best prepare themselves for preseason or for games or, or recovery from games, their diet, all of those kind of things. I, I remember hearing Gary Ablett Jr. talk years ago, I think after he won his first Brownlow, about his approach to his diet and, and how he would weigh out every piece of food that he ate. His entire food intake was completely tailored to you know, different training loads and different match loads and, and recovery and, and all of those kind of things. He, he became really, really obsessive you know, with it, um, you know, down to, you know, the gram of what he was putting in his body. Uh, the reality is that game day is only three hours and, and players are typically only at the club for about 20 hours or so a week. So most of what they're doing to prepare themselves for a game of football is done away from the club. So I suspect that that's just, you know, uh, Brad Scott's way of, of putting everybody on notice to to let them know that, you know, there's there's a lot more that needs to go into this to get the best out of themselves. Yeah, and you know it's it's not the be all and end all, but I I did notice that in one of the inf- interviews that Langford did, uh, that does seem like there's going to be a group of players that are going away to Arizona for some high altitude training, which you know teams have done in the past, and I know Essendon's gone and done in the past as well. Whether it's overall successful is up in the air, um, no pun intended, but. Um, it does send the message that, you know, they are trying to take it seriously and, and are trying to get the most out of it that they can, out of their their abilities that they can by doing as much prep as they can. Yeah, and I guess having someone like Kyle Langford doing that as a, you know, he might not have an official leadership title, but he's he's no doubt a leader of the playing group uh, to go away and do that. Hopefully that drags, you know, a, a group of guys who are the precipice of taking their careers to the next level uh, along with them. Uh, you know, Nick Martin has spoken about as someone who, um, you know, went back to Perth in the off season and got a trainer and, and continued at 
back here here in Victoria um, when he came back, but but worked really hard on on his fitness in the off season, and and we saw the benefits. You know, a lot of play. There's a lot of talk about second year blues. There were no second year blues for for Nick Martin, and in fact, he took his his game to the other level. So. You know, there, there's some guys there that are prepared to do the hard work and, and get the best out of themselves, and and hopefully we're we're now creating an environment where that's uh, the the rule rather than the exception, I guess. Yeah, and you mentioned unofficial leadership role there with Langford. I wouldn't be surprised if if that becomes official next season based on his performance this year and and some of his language and just the general sense he get in terms of his role around the rest of the players and, and how they look up to him. But look, let's turn our attention to the news. For the week, given it's the first week after the season's over, there's always a lot of contract news and and speculation. So let's dive right into it. So the first contract news came quickly this week with Lord Montgomery and McBride all not being given new contracts. And we've obviously gone through and done a couple of list analysis over the past uh, few weeks. And, you know, none of us are really surprised that that these players um, didn't get contracts. You know, it's it's probably the easy decisions um, that could be made and and some tougher decisions are still uh, up in the air there. Yeah, no real surprises there, I I don't think. Uh, Montgomery is probably a little bit interesting. That's two years in a row now with McDonough last season where we've drafted mature age, you know, sort of halfback flankers, wingers um sort of intercept style players that only lasted a season on our list so we've like we clearly identified that as a list need but it would seem we've got talent identification wrong on on both of those occasions so that that's a little bit disappointing that we haven't been able you know sort of none from two in that regard uh yeah uh, you know mcbride been at the club for four years and, and wasn't able to crack it um and yeah lord uh Again, it came out of that tricky draft, didn't he? Twenty twenty one, following twenty twenty, where you know not a heap of footy was played, um, and we, yeah, uh, he sort of goes with well, playing one game, but without actually getting on the field, doesn't he? So, um, yeah, a little bit of a shame there, but again, not really much of a surprise. Yeah, I think just on that that point about McDonough and Montgomery, you're right about talent identification, but you've got to remember that McDonough was a, a pick fifty odd or something. And uh, Montgomery was a, a rookie draft pick. So, you know, they're already pretty speculative to begin with. So, you know, they've taken a punt and it hasn't paid off. So obviously they, they as you say, they've identified a need and, and you probably do need to find someone there. But, you know, also I don't necessarily think this is, you know, something to necessarily hold against the list, the list team in this situation. Yeah, no, it wasn't so much a, a dig at anybody um, individually or or as, even as a group. But I think, you know, there are, there are other ways now to find mature age players, given that you now get an opportunity through the SPP um, situation to get guys to your club and train with you first. And uh, I guess we, we probably missed a, an opportunity to do it in a better way and get a, a look up to the – get a close look up – get a close up look at them before making a decision to put them on the list. But look, anyway, you're right. The speculative picks, uh, you you miss on on more than you hit in that area of the draft. So, yeah, we, we move on. And, you know, I think when the next couple of points are really going to be drawn from uh, Cal Toomey's gettable. So thanks, Cal. Um, sure you're listening. Um, firstly, was uh, Mankara um, unlikely to return? Um, there's been some rumblings that's, you know, he's gone back, gone back home and he's unlikely to come back to the club, which, you know, would be really disappointing given we did see, you know, a lot of improvement from a player that, you know, when we first drafted him, we were told that he wasn't actually going to be 
available to play VFL and he, he ended up playing the whole VFL year. So it is really tough, particularly for kids coming out of the situation that that he's living in. Um, it's a real culture shock. It's, a you know, being so far away from home. I, I certainly don't blame him for, for wanting to go back. But as an Essendon fan, I think, you know, another couple of years in the system and, and hopefully seeing it at the AFL level, I think would have been really exciting, but he's got to do what's best for him. Yeah, it, it would be a shame if we, you know, we don't see him come back. I think this is something that the AFL as a whole needs to to get a lot better at and and can continue to invest resource into to to improve these pathways of of young kids coming from remote parts of Australia where you know coming to Melbourne and a, and a city as big as Melbourne is with the population it's got compared to living a a rather remote lifestyle it's it's such a huge change away from family and friends and support networks into a, a professional sporting environment uh it yeah it, culture shock I, I think is the the best word for it. So, uh, yeah, let, let's with the improved, you know, welfare and development resources we've got at the club that that we continue to keep that that conversation open with him, and and he's got the support whether he comes back to the club or not. Um, you know, in the short term, that um, that yeah, the opportunities there if um, you know, if he does decide at some point that he wants to give AFL football another go. Yeah, fingers crossed. Uh, a couple of other news in regards to unsigned contracts is. Probably the, the two players after today's news that, that people are most concerned about are uh, Brandon Zerk Thatcher and Nick Bryan having not signed contracts yet. According Again, according to Cal on Gettable, um, both have contracts in front of them, although neither of them has signed. Um, lots to play out there, although the noise around Brandon Zerk Thatcher is much louder than, than that around Bryan. There seems to be a, at least a definite um, interest from one, if not two clubs there. And, you know, I think, it was noted somewhere that he didn't ask for a trade during his exit interview. That's Brandon Zerk Thatcher. Um, part of me think that that's hopeful that he's still considering his future, but there's also the part of me that thinks that he'd be holding off making a formal trade request until uh, Port Adelaide finished their season. We, it's very rare that a play and, player openly requests a trade to a club whose season is still alive. Yeah, look, I, I think most uncontracted players are going to uh, cause some level of media speculation. Uh, gettable is one AFL podcast or, or media production that I do uh, put some value in and, and listen to. I think uh, I think the guys do a really good job and and have a lot of respect there. So um, I think when it comes from a source like that, you can give it a little bit more trust than some of the others that are out there. But uh, yeah, look, it, it doesn't sound that BCT has completely made his mind up yet. But if it, you're right, if he did, if he had decided that he was going to go to Port, you you wouldn't know that until their se- season is finished. I think you know if McKay does join. Uh, I'd like to see those two in tandem, but it, it, if it presents an opportunity, as I said last week, to improve our list, then I'm pretty good with it. You know, we ultimately want players that are fully committed. If there's a go-home factor, we saw it with Fantasia where he um denied and, and then decided he was going to leave and then decided he'd stay and then he stayed for one more year and, and you know, really we ended up getting a, a good deal um, to send him to port. But, uh, yeah, we really just lost a year. So I think if he's on an hiring, we'd, we cash in at a time where both Adelaide clubs are looking for key defenders at the moment. So could be a, a really good time to sell. And and yeah, Ruckman, are, uh, I mean, they've just become a tradable commodity, haven't they? There's really only room for for one um, number one Ruckman on, on any list. And um, it, yeah, if he gets the opportunity that Nick Bryan, that is to go and play more minutes somewhere else, then, then no doubt he's going to look at it. Uh, and again, you know, probably a good time to to cash in and, and reinvest on some areas of our list that that need more work than that part. Yeah. Well, I, I hinted at this a bit earlier, but 
great news dropped early today with the announcement that Darcy Parrish had finally signed his contract offer from the Bombers. And obviously there was a lot that played out in the media over the weekend, but he's committed to the club now for the next five years. And I think that's a really great result. I think people really underestimate the importance that he has to this football side, um, especially considering the things that he's best at in terms of clearance and contested ball are two areas we really struggle with overall. Yeah, look, it it dragged on longer than any of us would have liked. It it might have been nice if it was done a few weeks ago and, and, um, yeah, given us some good news, uh, yeah, prior to the last two games. But the club held its nerve and and clearly was pretty keen on on a five year deal and and sounds like again through media speculation even his manager Scott Lucas talking on uh, Trade Radio or SEN or whatever it was uh, last week that they were keen for six years so it sounds like you know we, we probably met in the middle on cash I would imagine and and we've held firm on or the clubs held firm on on tenure I think five years is a is a good deal for both player and club I certainly don't need to rehash my views on on how I see Darcy Parrish I think it's great that we've locked him away along with Zach Merritt he's a, a key piece of our midfield going forward I think it's a really good sign like Mason Redmond before him that he's bought into where the club is heading and now we just get on with building the rest of our list and look I think if anyone's concerned that he's going to keep a young player out of the team I think that's a good thing I think you know they're going to need to work as hard or harder than Darcy Parrish does to get a game and that's how you raise standards it's not by trading out good talent and replacing it with another kid it's actually keeping you good players and 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 enforcing others to go past them in order to push them aside yeah and finally in the news section uh we had the all australian announced last night as well as a few other afl awards and of the three Essendon players nominated for the all australian side uh only zach merritt made it with with kyle langford and mason redmond missing out uh Merritt was named on the bench that's his third all australian guernsey he was also selected in 2017 and 2021 if you consider all australians for Essendon in the afl era only gavin wanganine james hurd and matthew lloyd had three or more Australian bursts, and that's Gavin Wanganine having three as an Essendon player. Um, so it's pretty good company to be in. And look, he's also odds on favourite to win his fourth Crichton, which would, would tie him with, with players like Tim Watson and Simon Madden, and that would only put him behind Heard, uh, Dick Reynolds and Bill Hutchinson um, if he does achieve that uh, fourth Crichton. And it just uh, also... He, he came second, but it's it's a nice little nod for Nick Martin to be rated by the coaches as, as a second best young player. Obviously, uh, no surprises that Nick Dacos won. He's obviously outstanding, but to be the second rated young player um, really speaks highly about what he's accomplished in his two years in the AFL. Yeah, good. Yeah, well said, mate. I think, you know, Zach Merritt with his third All-Australian and, and what I expect like you will be his fourth Crichton medal puts himself in real rare Essendon company. You know, when you're talking about names like Watson and Madden and Hearn and Lloyd, you're talking about real, you're Gavin Wangan and you're talking about real genuine legends of, of the Essendon football club. The, the one thing that each of those players mentioned have that, that Zach doesn't is a premiership medallion to go with those individual awards. And I made the comment uh, actually when my brother was on uh, and you were unwell that, you know, Zach's real legacy at the Essendon Football Club is still ahead of him. And, uh, you know, th- most of those guys came into successful clubs already and, and were able to be part of successful teams um, through successful errors, whereas Zach's, you know, unfortunately for him, joined at a time where the club hasn't been as successful, but he's committed himself. He, he's elevated himself as a as a really strong leader. And, uh, yeah, I, I think I, I think the best of Zach Merritt is still yet to come and, and he could really elevate himself through 
elevating this club and this team back to the top of the ladder to to you know being in the genuine legends of all time of of our football club if you know if he can close out his career as a premiership player i was a little bit surprised to be honest, that Redmond made the squad. I, I thought he had an up-and-down season. I, I think there's still quite a large gap between his best and worst, and, and particularly defensively. I think we always know what he can do as, a, as an on- offensive weapon, but the reality is he plays in our back six, and I think at times he his defence or, or defensive work needs or, or just has a, a lot to be desired, and, and yeah, he, he needs to really close that gap. I, I think if, if he does close that gap between his best and worst, we probably see him in the final 22 at some point throughout his career. And, and that's the challenge for, for Mason uh, to take the next step in his career. It's really good recognition for Kyle Langford and the season that he put together. He finished eighth in the Coleman medal, 12th in the in the AFL for total goal assists and 13th for total score involvement. So, uh, yeah, really uh, yeah, great recognition on a broader AFL spectrum that that he was recognised for the season he had. Other th- interesting bit on Kyle Langford, mate. He he played every game for the the season. That's the first time he's been able to achieve that in his career. So for him to get a full season out of his body, I think is you know hopefully gives him confidence to to take his game even further. And then yeah, you're spot on regarding Nick Martin. It's you know Nick Dacos has probably had the, one of the greatest second year seasons of a of you know any young player in the competition certainly in my time watching it so you know i think for nick martin to come second to him uh, and and get that accolade from the coaches i think is a tremendous effort given the well regardless of the pathway that he's come to but but even more so given the pathway he's he's had to come through to get onto an afl list yeah exactly well, look, let's turn our attention to sort of reflecting on on the season as a whole. And, you know, this isn't going to be our most developed thoughts. This, this is sort of our initial thoughts and we'll, we'll do a bit more of a deeper dive uh, in in the next coming weeks. But I guess just overall, you know, examining the season, looking back at the season as a whole, where are your feelings at currently? Yeah, we're, we're six days on now, mate, from the game against Collingwood and some of the emotions have simmered and, you know, as you and I like to do, we, we wanted to sit with it for a little bit before getting too deep into into things and, and having a close look. I think we both needed to put a little bit of space between the way the season finished and uh, and and take some of the emotions. So yeah, we'll we'll dig deeper in the in the next couple of weeks and 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 put together a, a show or two on on you know some of the findings that that this season was but i think 2023 is a is a hard one to to really get your head around we won four of our at four out of our first five games so we started the year really really well two of those wins were against teams that ultimately finished in the top 8 and then we had uh you know that loss to St Kilda in there who who went on and finished sixth i think on on the ladder so uh yeah we you know that we had some some easier runs in that early part of the draw getting Hawthorne in round one certainly helped but you know we had some tricky games in there as well and, and we were able to to win some games we then lost our next four uh but you know in in that there were three games against top four sides and a game against the reigning premier uh and and two really close losses in that four as well so you know we sort of got through the first nine games with a, a real consistency about 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 our performances we won, you know, we won four of those, had some close losses, got touched up by the cats, but but really it was a pretty solid start to the season. We then broke the Richmond Hoodoo, you know, a team that we hadn't beaten in in what felt like forever. And well, it, it was almost for, forever. And uh, and then went on to win four in a row, which culminated with that win against Carlton to go into the bye eight and five. So, you know, given where we'd come from the year before to get to the bye eight and five, that was already one more win than we had in the previous season. I, I think we had every reason for for real optimism. We had a lackluster performance against Frio post-bye, you know, that post 
post by Curse, which you know I don't give a lot of credence to, but it was a bit of a pattern across this season. And then had another close loss to Port Adelaide, and then a good win against Adelaide. So, you know, we sort of went through a reasonable, consistent level for you know up until the bye, where we didn't really, you know, bad a bad quarter on Anzac Day, uh, you know, bad start to the game against Geelong. We're ahead of Brisbane at, at halftime before falling away, but we'd been, you know, one of the more consistent sides in the competition. Put in a shocker against Fremantle and then bounce back against, uh, you know, Port Adelaide. I think we were on an eight or nine game winning streak at the time. Um, you know, all but won that game. You know, we we're ahead when the final siren um, blew, and then and then went on to beat the Crows to get fifth on the ladder. Uh, and and you know that those two wins against Adelaide and and well, sorry that game against Port and the win against Adelaide were important because you know, every Essence supporter was wondering, okay, we've lost to Fremantle now. Are we just back to where we were or, or had things changed? And, and the indications were after those, those two games against the Adelaide sides were, were that things had changed. It then started to unravel, you know, close wins against West Coast and North Melbourne, a spirited performance against Sydney. And that was all we really had to show for the final seven weeks of the season. So I think the question we're all asking is what's the real Essendon? Is it the team that barring a really, you know, a, a, you know, poor quarter against Collingwood and, and Geelong and, and Brisbane was largely consistent for the, through the first 13 games, got to, to eight and five with three close losses against top six sides to go with three wins against top eight sides. Is it the team that did bounce back and putting two good performances against Port and the Crows after coming back from the bye with a disappointing performance against Brio? Or is it the team that finished the season in a real whimper? Or, or, or is it all of the above or, or a combination of those? I think, you know, we'll, we'll dig into that in much, much more detail in the coming weeks once we've done a bit more analysis. I think we need to overlay that with some some of the trends that we saw in those games, some of the changes in the profile of some of the key data points that we saw uh, across those, almost breaking the season up into thirds, I think. And then also some of the challenges that we had covering for some key personnel that, that went missing. I think, you know, really, um, you know, we, we were really hurt by, you know, losing players, the, the quality of, of Ridley and, and the like in the back part of the season. So, yeah, I think there's there's some more digging to do before we can come up with um, with our own conclusions on that one. Yeah, and I think it's important just to touch on the drop off after the post the Adelaide game and what what that looked like statistically and and you know as you said we'll we'll dig into overall things a little bit more in the coming weeks but you know there's no real sugar coating it there was a clear drop off in the team's performance and that played out in the statistical measures so since the Adelaide game our percentage is only fifty eight percent and so if you compare say North Melbourne during that same period is 91% and West Coast is, is 67%. So, you know, there's some people suggesting we were the worst performed team post round seven and, and there's an argument for that. And, uh, you know, our disposal numbers and inside 50 numbers for, for both were fairly similar. However, our efficiency inside 50 fell off a cliff. So it was 51% up to Adelaide and then down to 38% afterwards. Uh and we were conceding a score 50% of the time our opposition entered 50 after the Adelaide game as opposed to 46 up to that game. So, yeah, real big difference in terms of our ability to score and, and the way in which we let our opponents score. Our, our center clearance numbers slightly improved. It was up to plus one in, in that second period as opposed to even. Um, but our stoppage clearance numbers really dropped away dramatically. We were going at close to even at, at minus 0.25, um, but that dropped away to minus 3.71. And the flow on effect from that was our contested possessions went from minus one a game to minus six and a half a game. And we're also unable to create outside control uh, like we had earlier in the year. So we were plus 12 for uncontested possessions 
up to Adelaide and then minus 14.6 afterwards. Um, you know, going back to that inside 50 uh, stat, you know, we were taking two less marks inside 50 and conceding two and a half more. And you can probably see where that inside 50 efficiency numbers change there as partly down to that reason. Now, we did tackle more post the Adelaide game, but, you know, when you look at the contested possession numbers, that's because we're getting second. We were getting second to the ball, and um, we we're also getting tackled a lot more ourselves. And, and that's probably down to the fact that we weren't be able to play as much of an uncontested game as we had been. Um, and something that really dropped away was our ability to uh, stick an inside fifty tackle. Um, we we're down to nine and a half inside fifty tackles a game, and, and that was down from almost eleven per game. And, and that's with our inside fifty numbers being very similar in terms of what we were generating. So we were generating the same opportunities inside 50 that we were earlier in the season, but we were taking less marks. And then when we weren't taking marks, we were also tackling less. So just our ability to get the ball inside 50 and retain it really dropped away across that period. Yeah, I think what was alarming in the last seven games is just purely the scoreboard damage. I think a lot dropped away. The, the quality of our entries when we went inside 50 weren't anywhere near the as clean as they were early in the year, there, there wasn't the space to operate in. And that was a lot due to, I, I think at least, you know, slower ball movement and, and and we weren't able to get the ball in the corridor as often as we used to be or as often as we were early in the season. And then, you know, the flip side, when the opposition got the ball inside 50 was was that they, they were operating in a much more open forward line than they were early in the year. You touched on it. Up up until round 17 when we played the Crows, we averaged 51 inside 50s a game. That dropped to 48.7 over the last seven games. So not a huge decline, but our scoring dried up. We scored 28.8 points less per game from virtually the same number of inside 50s or you know less than three per game less. So you know those two things aren't, aren't naturally aligned. We then reduced opposition inside 50s from 56.2 per game to 54.9. And again, only a slight difference, but we conceded nearly 21 points a game more than we did up to round 17. So it's a, a 3.7 inside 50 deferential swing in our favor, which you know should be a good thing. That, that would normally be a sign that you're, you know, well, it is a sign you're getting the ball inside 50 more often and, and restricting the opposition and, and, and winning more football through the midfield. But it's nearly a 50 point, per game differential swing against us. So, you know, our, our back line just crumbled. Our, our forward line wasn't operating efficiently and, yeah, it, it all just sort of fell apart. But here's my theory, mate, and I've been putting together some data and I'm, I'm going to spend a fair bit more time with this on the on the coming days to to finalise it and, and we'll do an, another sort of deeper review or, or post-season analysis show. But I don't think the game plan changed all that much from the start of the season. I think Brad Scott was... Was happy, and I'm talking from 2022 to to the first sort of block of, you know, 10 or 11 games this year. I, I think Brad Scott was happy to sit back and assess the playing group. I think he he definitely simplified things, and and we heard that in in the media and interviews from uh, from players. Uh, I think there was a, a much bigger emphasis on the defensive setup and structure behind the ball. I think there was a lot more cohesion in how the back six set up and and how they structured up the ground. I think there was more planning done. Uh, around the opposition and taking away some of their weapons than we've seen in previous years. So, you know, there were there were some some subtle changes that I think had a, a reasonably big impact. And then what I do think he was able to do was unlock some improved performances from the playing group just through creating a more simple and, and organized game style than what we had previously. But it wasn't it wasn't wholesale changes. The Essendon in the first half of this year wasn't overtly different to what we saw in previous years. 
there were just some tweaks that that allowed us to structure up better and and restrict opposition scoring more than we were able to in the past. Then I think in the second half of the season, that defensive structure evolved. I think there was a greater emphasis on defending higher up the ground, which was a necessary change. I think that's when some inconsistency sunk in. We started to concede more goals over the back. So because our defenders were higher up the ground, teams were able to get the ball over the back of us and, and beat us back to goal, which is you know the, the risk versus reward in, in that style of defending. I think that then saw some confidence cracks start to appear and then we got some injuries to key personnel which all sort of kicked in around the same time and they're not excuses I I should add for poor performances and and how poor some of those performances were but I do think there's some underlying reasons there as to why we fell away as much as we did in you know the back part of the season so I think it's I think there's a a rather large combination of mitigating factors amongst that and, and I certainly look forward to digging deeper into that in the next couple of weeks but yeah, as I, I sort of touched on at the start of this sort of preamble, mate, we're six days on now from our last game. Dust has settled. How do you feel about things, you know, year one under Brad Scott? Yeah, well, look, especially the last two weeks has really put a, a dampener on the moods of Essendon fans and, and how they feel about the year. But I certainly don't think that it's been as as one perspective uh, media commentator has been droning on about a wasted year. Um, look, that sort of simplistic quote, unquote, analysis doesn't fly here at, at Don the Stat. I think some perspective is in order. We've ended up finishing 11th, but if you, you look at overall statistically and also just culturally where the place is at, I think that's actually well ahead of where we're at as a club. I think for the most part, we, we probably should have finished lower on the ladder than we actually did based on the statistical analysis, which is something we'll get into uh, in the next few weeks. But let's look at some other sides that I think we compare to in terms of the positions that they were in when they appointed new coaches. Um, You know, there's no point comparing uh, Essendon appointing Brad Scott uh, with say Collingwood appointing Craig McRae. Um, You know, the list profiles and the the recent level of success of of both of those sides are completely different. It's not a fair comparison. Um, I'm going to make some comparisons to sides ultimately went on win the premiership. And, you know, that's, that can be seen as cherry picking. There's probably a lot of examples where, Coaches didn't work, but I'm trying to give some hope here. Um, what can happen? So, look, in the year 2004, the Hawthorne sacked Peter Schwab. Um, that year, they finished with four wins, a percentage of 70% on the ladder and in 15th spot. Uh, the next year uh, was the first under Alistair Clarkson, and they finished 2005 with five wins, 82% and 14th on the ladder. So, one extra win, uh, a decent chunk of extra percentage, but uh, only one spot higher on the ladder. In 2009, Richmond sacked Terry Wallace. They finished that year with two wins, a percentage of 54%, and in 15th position on the ladder. Uh, 2010, the first year under Damien Hardwick, they had four wins, uh, 68%, and 17% on the ladder. So again, decent chunk of percentage, a couple more wins, but still in that you know right down the bottom tier, they, they didn't move in terms of their ladder position. In 2013, Melbourne sacked Mark Neald. That year, they had, they had two wins, 54%, and were 17th on the ladder. In 2014, they hired Paul Ruse, but they signed up Goodwin as a designated successor, so they had a plan for the long term. That year, they had four wins, a percentage of 68%, and were 17th on the ladder. So again, a couple extra wins, a, a bit extra percentage, um, and uh, you know, but still the same ladder position. So Essendon's gone from seven wins, 83%, and 15th on the ladder uh, last year to 11 wins, 89%, and 11th on the ladder. 
Uh, so that's a bigger improvement in terms of win loss and ladder position than any of those three sides that I've covered that ultimately went on to, to win the flag um, years later. Now, look, I'm not saying we're necessarily going to win the flag like those teams did, but it's just to point out that it's not necessarily going to be huge signs immediately of improvement in year one of what I think is going to be a long-term rebuild. So overall, when it comes to Brad Scott, um, based on the way he speaks, I'm still confident he's got a clear plan about where he wants to take this club. As I said earlier, win or lose, his messaging has been really consistent all year. Uh, he's clearly got the knowledge base, not only as a, as a previous coach, as, as a premiership player, but also through his role at the AFL. Um, the experience and the reputation really, really build something successful if he's given the time to do so and he's able to get buy-in from the playing group or to develop his own playing group that'll play to his ethos. Um, but that also means that everyone in the club needs to start pulling in the same direction from the president right down to the receptionist at the hangar. Um, and if we can get that whole of club approach right, uh, we might have a chance to break the cycle that we've been stuck in for two decades now. Yeah, you touched on a, an interesting point with that whole of club and the the three clubs you mentioned, Hawthorne, Richmond and, and Melbourne, there's some real consistencies there with uh, uh, not just coach changes, but also whole of club changes, leadership changes with you know, presidents, CEOs or, or both. Uh, you, you know, certainly Melbourne wasn't just a coach change. They they completely gutted their their senior leadership and and pretty much started again and and rebuilt their playing list as part of that as well. So, yeah, and I think if if you look back this time a year ago, we had a board spill. We didn't have a coach at all. Uh, the, the CEO was on his way out the door. The, the club was in a real state of flux. And, and a year on from that, we have a coach and a president who were on record in the last week as saying that they're committed to making – the changes that we need to make to get, or they need to make to get Essendon back to being a successful football club. Uh, no more sugar hits was a, a term that was used by uh, our president, Dave Barham, you know, time to do it properly. And I think that puts us in a much stronger position than we were 12 months ago, just to have a strong and stable and, and unified leadership at the helm of the club. Uh, it means that, you know, whilst that might not trans transcend into wins and losses, uh, well, or, or finals in the short term that that we are setting ourselves up for long term success. And you know, I think, and I've said this before, twenty twenty three was always about Brad Scott and Craig Vozzo learning about what they did and and didn't have at their disposal on and off the field. And and I reckon that they've they've learned that through what we've seen this year. That, that they've learned what we've got when things go well, and they've learned what we don't have when things go poorly. So uh, you know, in in many ways, the the bipolar nature of the way this season played out, I think, has has been a little bit of a blessing for our leaders because it's given them a, a really good understanding of what we're capable of when we get things right, but also what we're missing uh, in 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 order to close the gap between our best and our worst. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it, just because the year ended ended poorly doesn't mean we can't take positives from the year. When It's not going to be an exhaustive list here, but some of the things that, that stood out to me was the increased investment in player development, I think, is really crucial. It's, it's not necessarily something we're going to see the fruits of for a couple of years, but more emphasis on development after being undervalued for quite a while can only be a good thing. And one consistent complaint that fans have had is, our inability to turn obviously talented players uh, into good, consistent performances on the park. And look, this isn't the investing in player development isn't the only answer to that, but it is a big part of the solution. So the fact that they've focused on that um, and hopefully they can get the right people into those roles that, that can make a difference and get, you know, that extra five, 10% uh, consistent performance out of players. We'll see the results of that in the years to come. 
And speaking of that, the players that are going to benefit most from that development are our young players. And uh, look, if you look at our under-23s, you know, Martin and Perkins played every game. Durham played 22, Caldwell and Menzi 21, and, and Hobbs 18. So that's six young players, more than a quarter of the side running out each week. It's basically played every game. And, you know, you can touch on a lot of the other young players that, that did get AFL game time. But those were the, the main ones that were basically mainstays of our side um, that were quite young. So that's huge for their development, not only for themselves, but also how they connect with each other. You know, other than Menzi there, all of those players are midfield players and you want those players to develop connections with each other so they know how the other players are going to run, how they're going to react in certain situations, what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are, so they can best support them in that. And, you know, Perkins, Caldwell and Hobbs all attended more than 150 centre bounces for the year. So, again, they're getting that they, that game time in, in the most difficult situations um, where they can work on improvements. None, none of those players that I've talked about, those those uh, players under 23 are the finished product, but they're a lot closer because of the game experience they've got this year um, than they would have if, you know, they were spending a lot of time in the VFL. Yeah, once again, mate, good summary. Got some games late in the year into Cox as well. Brian played, you know, a handful of more games that, you know, and certainly more games than he played last year. We had a little, little bit of a look at, at Baldwin late in the year as well as a as a key defender. Uh, and then Sardis, of course, got a taste right at the end. I think there were some individual improvements. We spoke about Langford and, and Merritt earlier. I think Stringer bought into playing a more of a team role that we haven't seen before. I think he led us for inside 50 tackles, which, you know, is a <laughs> double-edged sword. I think it says a little bit about the the lack of depth we've got in, in that area of the ground, despite the impact that Menzi had as essentially a first-year player. But, uh, yeah, there, there's some work to do there. But, but yeah, I, I think Stringer became a, a much more of a team first player than we've seen previously. I think McGrath improved as a deep defender. You know, we moved him back into his best position. I think he's a, a really outstanding one-on-one defender and, and did some really good jobs on some really good s- small forwards. Uh, and then BZT, I think, improved his game as well. And, uh, you, know, uh, you know, early in the year, we were really lauding the development of him, uh, I think, you know, admittedly, both him and McGrath dropped away towards the end, as as did most of our team. But yeah, I, I think uh, you know we we didn't necessarily see the world's best game plan, or or you know we we didn't make the final, we we didn't win a final, but uh, and and the game the season uh, sort of petered out in in a really disappointing fashion. But I think we you, you know we walk away from the season knowing more about our list. And that's a real positive. I think we saw some really good individual performance out of some players. And and as you touched on, we got some games into some really high caliber young players. And I think our depth of of young talent is is now becoming a little bit of of a, of a strength. And and what we really need is is one or two of them to to really elevate their game to become stars of the competition. And look, what what's the last seven weeks? You know, had re- four really, really poor games uh, among it. I think the other big positive for me, mate, was for the most part, I really enjoyed going to the footy again, and and it's and more so than I have in in a really long time. Uh, you know, I think up until that Bulldogs game, but but even then, you know, we we had a really good first quarter, and, and we were in that contest probably up until the point Jordan Ridley got injured. Really, so you know that that game obviously came off the back of the, the big loss to the Cats at Cadinia Park. So you know, sort of, sort of, up until that point, I, I watched Essendon every week with a level of confidence that we'd give a good account of ourselves, and I really haven't felt that way. I, you know, previous years I've gone to most games thinking, "Oh, what are we going to get today?" Well, for sort of 17, 18 weeks of this season, I, 
I went to the footy thinking that, you know, whether we'd win or lose, I was pretty confident that we we're going to give a good account for ourselves. And I think that more than anything is where the big improvement has come from this year. Yeah. Well, look, we've hinted at it a lot, but there's a lot of work to do to turn the Essendon Football Club into a, a successful outfit. And there's, you know, a huge amount of things that do need fixing. But what do you see as the key decisions that, that Brad Scott, Craig Vozzo and, and the Essendon leadership need to get right in this offseason? Yeah, I don't think it's necessarily specific decisions or changes for me. I think it's just, you know, those guys would have sat back with a, a framework of a strategy that they were going to put in place with the support of the board to take this club forward. I, I think the the strategy and implementation of, of that strategy now being a year on for Brad Scott and, and eight months on for Craig Vozzo now affords them to just get on with it. I think that they've... I would hope they've seen what they want to see and, and now it's just about um, getting on with the job. Uh, you know, I think sort of break that up into into three areas. We, we need to finalise our game plan and, and game style. Uh, we spoke last week about how varied the top four teams are from from one another and, and how they go about it in different ways. And, you know, we, we sort of touched on the point that if Melbourne don't win the flag this year, then we're going to have a very different uh, premier to what we've had and, and that likely drives change uh, and uh, you know we we need to probably bed that down a little bit I suspect it already has and and this season was about learning who was and wasn't going to be able to fit into that but I think that that probably just needs to be tweaked and finalised and then we need to to get a, a three to four year list strategy in place that allows us to target specific players that we need to take us to final success and, and the implementation of that ultimately starts, you know, now we're, we're in that that trade sort of free agency period effectively where we're starting to look at, at the the initial pieces of our list strategy to, to fall into place. And then I think we need to ensure we have the right high-performance staff and coaches on deck to get the most out of our playing group. I think this is a really big preseason. If, if we're as serious as Brad Scott, seems to be about making real cultural change and, and raising standards, then I think this this preseason is is really important in that we need to make sure that we've got the right people around our playing group to to hold them accountable for for delivering on that. Absolutely. Well look, I think that's a really good point to end on, mate. Thanks again for all the work you've been doing and, and thanks again to everyone for listening and conversing with us throughout the season. It is a, a lot of fun to do this with you, Jono, but also the interactions have had listeners and the people we've got to meet by doing this has been just as good i think we say it every week but each week we meet it more and more uh you know it's fantastic the amount of thought that people put into things they send us and, and talk to us about is really pleasing and again makes it fun to do this yeah thanks mate it's been yeah it has been a lot of fun i'm really grateful for the hard work that you do you see things that i don't and, and i've learned a lot about footy and the way the games play because of of all the work that you do and, and the analysis that you put in so yeah really really grateful to to spend as much time with with you as i have over this season it's it's been amazing uh thank you to to the special guests that that you've had on and, and interviewed throughout the season and and also uh, uh rob shaw and and my brother andrew for for being on our main show a couple of times each throughout the season. Uh, really grateful for that. And and also thanks to to everyone who's listened in. Um, yeah, the the support and, and messages we get really keep us motivated and engaged. And we just love talking about footy and, and love talking about Essendon. So, yeah, thank you for 
for allowing us to do that as, as readily as we get to. Uh, I, yeah, I, I've said this before, but I really didn't think that we'd get more than a dozen or so people listen to us when we did our first show. So to be two seasons on and have thousands and thousands of people listening every week is, uh, yeah, truly overwhelming and, and I still can't quite believe it. I'm, yeah, really proud of, of what we've been able to do and, and grateful uh, to be able to do that with you, mate. So, yeah, thank you and I look forward to it. Yeah, a couple more shows to close out 2023 and then coming back into 2024, bigger and better than ever. Absolutely, mate. Well said. Look, we're working on shows over the off-season and the Patreon Q&A will be released to all listeners a day or two after it's recorded. And, and then we'll look at doing some more extensive post-season analysis as we've hinted at across the course of the show. And, and then we'll also uh, dip our toes into draft and trade period when that happens. But look, till then, stay safe, everyone, and go Dons.